As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. A few weeks ago, I came across this book called Courage is Calling by Ryan Holiday. Now, I'm not recommending this book. I bought it. I read it and no doubt there is a lot to be gained from it. But there was one part where the author talks badly about Cicero. And on reading it, I had to contact my brother Ahmed, who is an authority on Cicero and his life and works, and ask him, is this the standard opinion on who Cicero was? And from that conversation, a lot emerged. So I asked him if we could do an episode for the podcast on Cicero, his life, his works, and what he spent his life striving to achieve. And here it is. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 22, Cicero, Fear and Loathing in the Late Republic. The Roman Republic basically starts small town in Italy and starts with kings and then the kings become corrupt. So you've got the myth of Brutus and he kills the king and sets up what he calls a republic. And the republic, you can translate as republic. It's probably better to translate it as the commonwealth because it is the, it's the wealth of a state that belongs to everyone. It belongs to the whole community of people. And over the next 800 years, this thing grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And it reaches its height at around 200 BC with the Carthaginian Wars, where the main enemy is Carthage and they're fighting against Carthage. And as soon as Carthage disappears, there's no one who can really fight the Romans anymore. So at that point, it expands super quickly. You've got this massive wealth, massive fortunes, and massive amounts of slaves, everything. So luxury, as you can expect, starts to go through the roof. And at this point, the the kind of the moral fabric of the Republic starts to like fall apart because now people haven't had to work hard to gain anything. Everything's been given to them easily. And you can kind of see the cracks start to form. So around 200 years before the collapse, you've got the Gracchus brothers. And the Gracchus brothers come in with their popular politics, which you mustn't be confused with for the people. Because it's not about, it's not for the people. These men were the elites, 
but now where the aristocracy used different political tools the populares were still aristocracy but they're now using the masses as a tool because you you can basically take the unrest amongst the masses and use that to give yourself political power so the the gracchus brothers they get involved with the land crisis because a lot of the aristocracy was stealing land and they basically vetoed a bunch of stuff and they weren't letting some land stuff happen and in the end they get killed then a little bit later you have the same kind of thing happening with marius and sulla and you have another civil war sulla wins it basically for the aristocracy sets up the senate again and kind of now you've got a stable thing cicero is basically born during around the time just before sulla comes into power cicero is from a, a small town outside of rome so he's not he's not anything and his father wanted to give him the best education so his father sends him to rome to be educated and cicero starts off as a lawyer one of his rules was never ever attack anyone always defend because when you defend someone you make friends and if you attack someone you make enemies so he works his way into the aristocracy through the law courts and he he defends this person he defends that person he creates a whole structure of people around him who he's defended and now everyone owes him a favor so he sets himself up in this position and then there was a big case with some of his friends in sicily where he did his governorship he basically um prosecuted for the first time he prosecuted so now he attacked someone and this was a man named varius who was a governor in sicily he was brought on charges of corruption and cicero saw the opportunity where he was like i can save my people in sicily i can support myself with so and so and so and so and if i destroy this guy i've basically taken out a huge political opponent so he goes and prosecutes varius with some phenomenal phenomenal rhetoric flawless and he won and that's how he then gains himself that's how he puts himself into that circle so he prosecuted but he he usually only defends so he prosecutes varies which is a big case like this would have been this would have been your i mean everyone went to the law courts i mean you if you're an urban pleb what do you do on your your weekend well cicero speaking in the law courts you're going to go watch cicero perform because it's going to be one of the most amazing things you've ever seen and all of the all of the aristocracy they're like the celebrities that we have today so you're following around kim kardashian but instead of kim kardashian you're following around cicero you've got cicero fighting his enemy varies who's this corrupt politician who's basically he's come from sicily with all of these gifts all of these gifts and he's handing all of these gifts to all of his political people and cicero's there just like no like we're going to this is my moment i see an opportunity for me to get in and i'm going to take it I'm going to break my own rules. I'm going to prosecute and if I lose this, I can lose everything, but if I win, I gain everything. So he takes that risk. He goes into it. He becomes part of that circle. And then you get Catiline. And Catiline was another one of these people like the Gracchi and Marius and Sulla who now want one man rule. They're looking to take over the whole thing. And Cicero comes in I mean Dr. Ali I remember telling me he was said that the Cicero was used. So Cicero was used by the aristocracy. And I think there's a, probably a lot of truth to that. That Catiline was one of the the aristocrats and the aristocracy can't kill one of their own. 
So they get Cicero in. Cicero does works his magic like he always does and gets rid of Catiline. But they basically sold Cicero down the river because shortly afterwards he gets exiled for killing Catiline without a trial. You weren't allowed to kill a Roman citizen without a trial. But because Catiline was basically planning a, a coup d'etat, that Cicero spoke to the Senate, the Senate voted to have Catiline killed, they killed him, and afterwards he kind of, that's, that was the height of his career. And after that he starts to, to fall a bit, because now he's now killed a Roman citizen without a trial, he gets exiled for quite a long time. But, I mean, just, he had Catiline killed. Yeah. Outside of the judicial... No, through the... Well, it, it, through the Senate. So the Senate is... I mean, the Senate is quite a difficult thing because it doesn't work. It's not... The Senate is an authority. So you don't necessarily need to listen to the Senate. But because it's made up of the the 300 most... The wealthiest and most politically influential people, you don't really want to do anything against them. So it's like if the Senate tells you to do something, it's just advice. The Senate just offers advice. But if the Senate's offering you some advice, you take that advice. Because if you go against the Senate, you're going against everyone. You're going against the main people. They were the, the powerhouse at the center. They were the aristocratic families, those, the oligarchy. But their, their power wasn't so constitutional. Their power was through, I mean, what the Romans call octoritas, which is like authority. So authority and power are different. So the power comes, so they say that the power lies with the people, but authority lies with the Senate. So yeah, so they, they, they kill Catiline and then people have seen what's possible. So people have seen that Sulla's been a dictator. Catiline was almost a dictator. And you've got this theme of dictators coming up. And the, but the, the struggles are coming from the fact that you don't really have an outside enemy anymore. So now the grouping of people at the center who all had one goal, which was let's destroy Carthage. We need Carthage to go because they are our biggest threat. As soon as that threat disappears, now people start fighting amongst themselves where now it's, I want control of the Senate because that's the most powerful thing. So now instead of having a Senate, which is looking outwards, you have a Senate, which is now starting to, to look inwards and everyone's now vying with each other. There was always competition for glory, but the glory was glory for everyone because everyone benefited from Carthage being destroyed. And then if you destroyed Carthage, you get the most glory and you're the one who destroyed Carthage and you become Scipio Africanus and you have your name remembered 2,000 years later. <laughs> then you have Pompey. He was the right problem of the whole thing because he was someone who basically wanted to do the exact same thing as Caesar, but he wasn't good enough. So he fights against Caesar and he loses. And <laughs> Cicero at this point takes Pompey's side because Pompey was on the side of the Republic, but Pompey was never really on the side of the Republic. It was just in, in rhetoric. Cicero said something about it. He said that the, there's nothing noble about the aristocracy, only their cause. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> <laughs> something along those lines. But it was the cause was with, for the Republic. And I mean, this Republic built Cicero. The, the Republic went from Cicero being a small man on the outskirts of Rome 
to console. No family relations, no wealth, no nothing. He did it all with his voice. So he did it all through defending people and using his rhetoric to basically get things moving. In the As a consular, he never really got involved in any of the fighting until he had to. So with Pompey and Caesar in that civil war, he's kind of a middleman. That he says, I'm, well, I take your side because I have to because Caesar's worse, but you're not doing things right either. And Caesar, you've got these things. I'm not going to attack you for doing X, Y, and Z because that's all right. But these things are, need to stop. And I'm going to accuse you as being a tyrant. I'm going to do all of these things. When Caesar comes out on top, Cicero's position in the Republic is finished. Now you're, you're not in a free Republic anymore. You're in a tyrannical state. You've got a tyrant. Caesar's there and there's not much you can do. And within this dictatorship of Caesar, Cicero's daughter dies as well. So his daughter dies in 45 BC. I mean, this was horrible for him. It broke him. It really broke him. He couldn't go back to Rome. He couldn't do anything. You've got all of these letters where everyone's asking him, like, Cicero, where are you? Like, you have to come back. You have to show her. You have to show strength because now people are worried what's going on. They're thinking you're, you're there grieving. And he, he was, but he couldn't, he couldn't bear facing anyone. So at this point, he decides that his political role in the Republic is not the same as it used to be. There's a philosophical work before Caesar came into, into power um, on the Republic, which is essentially Plato's Republic translated for a Roman situation. And in this work, You've got this idea of, of liberty, liberty and the Republic. And he creates this thing of that Rome is different from all of these other Greek states and Greek politics, because you have the Polybian cycle of monarchy descends into tyranny. And then out of tyranny, you get an aristocracy and the aristocracy descends into oligarchy. And then out of oligarchy, you get democracy and out of, down from democracy, you get ochlocracy and mob rule. And then you have the interim and then it's back to monarchy, right? Now, Cicero says that what the Roman Republic did differently was they had a mixed constitution. So you've got your consul on top as the monarch. Now there's two consuls, but six months each. So the power is always balanced by another person. And beneath the consuls, you have the Senate. And the Senate is your aristocracy and they have power and they can control the consul. They can get rid of the consul if they need, they can, they have power as well. Then you have the, the masses and the people and the people have 10 tribunes that represent them. So they elect their tribunes to represent them. Now, can the tribunes do anything? Not really, but they do have one thing, which is really, really significant. They can veto anything. So if the Senate and the consul say that we're going to do this, if one of the tribunes says, you're not allowed to, then it's done, it's finished, you can't do anything about it. So you've, you've got this, you can't the, you're allowing the aristocracy to govern, but you're making sure the people are happy. So if you're doing anything that's too against the people, the people have a veto. No, 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 no. That's, that's not good for us. Stop. So it's checks and balances. Exactly. So Cicero basically says that now you've got the perfect state because we've now broken this structure 
and we've made it into one thing. So now it can't move from democracy to autocracy or aristocracy to oligarchy or monarchy to tyranny. It can't move to any of these things because we've now got the all three at once. You've got that balance of powers through all people. Everyone, every person can be involved as much as they want, basically. So it's for a moment in time, the perfect ideal. And for Cicero, even more so because he was from outside. So this, this perfect system, he had the desire to be there. And this perfect system, because he had that desire, was able to draw him out from the people into that space of the, the leading aristocracy, which oh, is what's wow. needed. Okay. So this is something that he's very, very close to Cicero. And within the Republic, you've got this core, core, core ideology of freedom. Now, freedom is the opposite of slavery. And if you remember the, the myth of Brutus and the founding of the Republic, the founding of the Republic was on the expulsion of the kings and the tyrants and one man rule and the introduction of the Republic, which meant freedom. Because now you've got the governing, but no one's under the rule of a tyrant. Everybody is free. No one's a slave. And that's what makes the Romans different from everybody else, because everyone else can be slaves, but Romans were not slaves. We're not slaves to anyone. We are much better than everyone else because we're Roman. And that's there. I'm a Roman and I'm free. The liberty, this liberty, libertas, which is the core ideology of Rome, that the, what defines being Roman is the fact that you are free and you live in a community of people and a large community of people and everyone's free, or at least all the Roman citizens are. And this idea of liberty was held together by justice and by the law courts. So you've got the law courts, which are maintaining the, the freedom by basically making sure that if anyone's trying to do anything a little bit dodgy, the, the law courts will put them all in place. And that's how you maintain justice and freedom. Now with Caesar as dictator, that all disappears. There's no law courts anymore because the law courts are corrupt. You've got the one man power who's made his power basically through the money supply. He's gone to Gaul, he's massive, massive riches. He's super rich. He comes into Rome. First thing he does, Temple of Saturn. I think it's Salus who says it, but it was the first time in history where a Caesar was richer than Rome or a consul was richer than Rome or any Roman citizen was richer than Rome itself. Because if you remember the, the Republic as the Commonwealth, he stole it. And he took it for himself. And that's what the temple, of, the temple of Saturn was, the treasury. Yeah. He basically seized the whole thing for himself. He took the, everything for himself. And the Republic that Cicero had loved so much is now gone. And at this point, he realizes that his philosophy is wrong. Because he's just written this whole book about how the Republic is this perfect system that can, is incorruptible. And now he's, now it's dead. Now it's what, what does he, what does he do now? And this thing that he lived his whole life for is now gone. And at this point he turns to his villa. So his daughter's dead now, his, rep the Republic's dead. Everything that he's lived his whole life for is collapsing right in front of him. He's completely distraught. And what does he do? He goes to his villa and he starts writing the, the Tusculan disputations. And these, this is a very, very difficult work to, to kind of get through, but he writes this book as an attempt to analyze and look for a way for 
how he can deal with his own grief. So there's a big concentration on grief, but also all of the emotions. And he looks through all of the different philosophical schools of the time. So he looks through Epicureanism. And the Epicureans, they said that you've got the ultimate good in life, which is pleasure, the ultimate bad, which is pain. So everything in life should be about gaining pleasure and anything about pain you should avoid. Yeah, that was the, how they viewed things. Then you've got the Stoics. And the Stoics are very serious, very theoretical, and often quite harsh, especially in the language as well. It's difficult to read the Stoics because they're, they don't like oratory because oratory is flowery and all of these other things. So they, 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 they ignore all of that. And then you've got the peripatetics. I mean, what, what Cicero says about it is their theory is not really that good or their, their theory is not as good as the Stoics but their solutions to the problem are much better than the Stoics. And this is where we get onto fear because the, yeah, the whole thesis was now how does Cicero engage with fear in this context? So you've got these emotions in the Greek philosophy and the emotions need to be defined quite carefully. And Cicero finds that the Stoics are the best at this. So what the Stoics say is the Stoics say that you've got the emotions are contrary to reason and they are against nature, contra naturam. And what they mean by that is that it's a, it's a movement of the mind. So the, even the word emotion, emotion in English is E out of motion. So it's emotion out of your mind or out of reason. And the word in Latin they use is perturbatio, which is like a turbulence. So it's basically a confusion, a turbulence in your head that destroys reason now you can't you're not thinking reasonably anymore you're against reason and what is it is it's based on an opinion on what you think is either happening to you right now or about what's happening to you in the future so you've got you've got four main emotions you've got fear which is the opinion that something is coming to you in the future which will be bad painful or yeah bad in the most general sense. Then you've got grief, which is present bad. And it's the belief that a situation that you are in presently is bad. Then you've got, you've got pleasure or not, pleasure is not a good word to use because it's got other connotations. Actually, no, 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 actually it, it does work well. Uh, you've got pleasure, which is good now. And then you've got desire, which is a hope for something good in the future. Now, these are based on opinion and opinion means that it's based on a belief. So you believe that the thing is coming, which is bad for you. But now what the Stoics say is the Stoics say that that's not to say that if something bad in the future is coming, that you shouldn't feel something because you should, but what's bad about it, the bad part is the fact that you're going away from reason. And they say that if you are in line with reason, if something in the future you know is going to be bad, then that's not fear anymore. That's being cautious. You're not being scared. You're being cautious. Very finicky definition. But then this is why that the fear is the bad one. Caution is the good one, which if it's based on knowledge is good. But if it's based on an opinion and just something you believe, then it's bad. And you shouldn't base your thoughts on what you think. You should base your thoughts on what you know. 
And if you don't know, then don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so then at this point, Cicero gets into the analogy of the, the body and he starts to use that the human mind as a body. So as he says that you've got sicknesses of the body, you also have sicknesses of the mind. And these sicknesses of the mind are the emotions. So another word he uses to describe the emotions because they don't, the Latin doesn't have a word for emotions. He's taking from the Greek philosophy, which is the Greek pathos. And pathos is actually illness. So it's, uh, it's used for illness as well. So then, but Cicero thinks that the emotion isn't quite the illness. It's when the emotion happens over and over again, that it starts to become a habit. And when it becomes a habit, then you're now sick because then you've got a, it's almost, you've got a permanent break away from reason and the, the Stoics then look at themselves as doctors that now you've got this idea of if you apply the right reason, then you won't have the emotions anymore. So you must get rid of all your emotions, not the good ones. So not the, you don't get rid of your caution. It doesn't mean you don't be cautious and you're not reckless. You've still got to have caution. It doesn't mean that you don't desire good things, but you don't desire them irrationally. And you don't desire things that you think are good, which aren't good. It means that you desire things that are good. Fact, regardless of what's going on in your head. But obviously this is a very difficult, difficult thing to do. And even back then they said that the person who can get rid of their emotions was the Stoic sage. But they didn't, even the Stoics didn't believe that there was many of these people. They, some of them say that Socrates was the only Stoic sage. Everybody else was just trying their best, but no one was actually this person who'd got rid of their emotions. So Cicero asked the question, well, what about the rest of us? He's like, he's chilling there and he's saying, well, I am grieving. I am a human being and I do feel grief. What do I do about it? I know it's bad. I know I shouldn't be feeling it. Why do I still feel it? And he goes into the philosophy to try and find answers to that. Now the Stoics, their idea is basically to get rid of the emotions, you just need correct reasoning. So if you correct your reasoning and I mean, the Stoics believed in the rational universe where everything is in alignment and everything is perfect, at which point what you're desiring or what you're fearing, you're giving it a, a good or a bad but good and bad doesn't exist. Good and bad can only come about through, through language, which obviously in the Greek word is logos, which is translated as logic as well. Logic and right, wrong, morality, all of these things come about through language. If you don't speak, there's no good or bad. There's just what's going on. Only until we can give words to it and we can say that, no, that was bad, does the the idea of good or bad comes in because everything is constant. Yeah. So this is like, I mean, and this is like the very intense stoic method. Yeah. Cicero thinks it's a bit too much. And he says, but not everyone can understand that. You can't expect if cool, if someone's interested in philosophy, then yeah, they can use the philosophy to overcome these things, but not everyone's like that. What about the rest of us? who don't understand the philosophy. How do we overcome our fear? And he gives, like two or three options, which the first one is the stoic solution of you attack it with reason. So you apply reason to it. Could you give an example of that? 
what to apply well essentially to apply reason basically saying that the thing that you think you fear right is not actually to be feared okay so if if someone fears death then you have a conversation with them and you discuss philosophy to convince them that death's not bad that there's nothing wrong with dying once you're dead you're dead and why are you worried about it it's a natural part of life there's if you if you're fearing non-existence you you don't fear what it was like before you were born before you existed why should you fear what it would be like after you're born so you use all of these these reasoning things and essentially the the stoic way is basically that everything is in harmony and what happens bad what the bad things that come to you i mean it's quite a sufi thing as well that what's what's bad isn't necessarily bad it's all by allah it's all natural which means it's all good because natural is good so if it's all from nature then anything that happens is good and everything should be in a natural harmony and yeah the idea of good and bad then disappears when everything is when you don't have good or bad it's just is then there's no reason to to be swayed by good things or bad things because now they don't matter but the peripatetics give better solutions the peripatetics are much more involved in rhetoric well the peripatetics say that the emotions aren't actually bad not completely bad but it comes from their lack of definitions because they were when we to- spoke about fear and caution they don't differentiate so they say that they talk about moderation but instead of talking about away from reason and reasonable they say moderation so they say if fear is bad don't get rid of fear completely because you need fear in life just moderate your fear to a a low level but sisro says well no that's that may be a good solution but it's not the best and we want the best solution because we're we're romans so good isn't good enough we need to be the best <laughs> i mean you can yeah you can understand where caesar came from because it is that it is that ideology of i want to be the best and being good isn't good enough i need everything and i want it all and um yeah so cicero is looking for this answer and the one way he comes up with is to target the fear itself so you say um this objective fear is stupid and the there's no reason to to fear it or like it's to use the example of death again but our oh, death is just stupid whatever you can't avoid it and it's just it's going to happen and you know what like death has nothing on me i'm much stronger than death and you can talk like this and then you don't you that that will soothe your fear because now you've yeah that's one way the other way is to target fear itself and he says that now if you talk contemptuously about the actual emotion that's something that now every single philosophical school can now work with because regardless of what you believe is good and bad if you don't even get involved in the conversation about what is good and bad but you say what you if fear comes from your own understanding of what's good and bad but now if you can accept that the fear is bad and every school should be able to do that because whether you think that pleasure is the highest good or whether you think virtue is the highest good or whether you think reason and the right thing is the highest good regardless of which one you think is the highest good the emotion of fear is still something that takes you away from all of those things so every school of philosophy should in theory think that fear or at least be able to be convinced that fear is a bad thing 
And by talking contemptuously about fear itself, you can also get rid of these emotions. And essentially, these, these Tusculan disputations is Cicero's attempt at healing his own emotions. So in him writing the philosophy and writing it down, there's a dual, there's a personal thing and there's a political thing. So you've got the personal thing, which is he's dealing with his own grief and he needs to overcome that. And that's, this is a, a matter of urgency for him. At the same time, the Republic's died. So the Republic's grieving and he wants to help the Roman people somehow. And he can't do it through oratory anymore because there's a dictator. So his, his authority is now not the same as it was. He can't, he can't have any influence there. So he says, where can I best have influence in a dictatorship? Well, I can write philosophy and I can teach people through education. So he goes and writes these Tusculan disputations as an education for the Roman people to basically be able to, to move forward. Um, but this is also still quite early days. Then at this point, or well, about a year after writing the Tusculan disputations, Caesar's assassinated. The people come in at Brutus and Cassius and company. They stab him to death in the forum under the statue of Pompey, his greatest enemy. And yeah, quite, quite poetic how it ended. <laughs> and afterwards, Cicero is now in a completely different situation because now there's no dictator, but there's also no republic. So you're in this complete chaos. There's no structures around anywhere. What the hell do you do? And at this point, Cicero is looking at Mark Antony. And Mark Antony is looking like a tyrant. And Cicero, being human, is terrified. He's absolutely terrified. He doesn't know what to do. He's not a military man. How is he supposed to attack this man? How is he supposed to do anything? Mark Antony was the military man. Yeah, Mark Antony. I mean, Mark Antony was Caesar's right-hand man from, for quite a long time. And he was, he's been with Caesar for a long time. And when Caesar was assassinated, it was Caesar and Antony as consuls. So you've got Caesar as a dictator, and that's his official title, which isn't bad at that point. And you've got Mark Antony, who's his right-hand man. And I mean, this is the, his main general who's going around, yeah, all the battles and stuff. Mark Antony's right there with him. And also his second in command. So when Caesar dies, there's only one consul left, and that's Mark Antony. So before you can get rid of Mark Antony, you've got to wait until the end of the year. This is in March, the Ides of March, this happened, 14th, 15th of March, they kill Caesar. And now you've got to wait until December. So now Mark Antony has got nine months where he is in full power. He's got Caesar's troops. He's got Caesar's money. He's got the, the authority of being a consul. And yeah, he's got everything in his, he's got everything. And at this point, Cicero's, got another decision to make. Uh, his son at the time is studying in Athens and his son doesn't know what he's doing. So Cicero is hearing news of his son basically going around drinking and getting a little bit loose. He wanted to, to join Caesar's troops at some point and Cicero is really, really worried. And he wants to go to Athens to basically offer his son some advice and tell him this is the route you should take. And if this is who you are, this is where you want to go. And this is the most beneficial path for you. At the same time, he sees the Republic is in serious danger and he wants to go to the Republic to, to help, but he also doesn't know how to, and he's scared. So what does he do? 
he once again turns to philosophy to find the answers. And in the philosophy with fear, which is basically underlying, it's one of the underlying themes of the, the, the philosophical text on duties, which by the way, he wrote incredibly quickly. This is a book that he wrote in like a month, le even less probably, because this is urgency. And you can feel, you get that sense throughout the whole text that this is, we need to do something. We need to do something now, otherwise it's going to be too late. And he doesn't know how long he's going to live and all of these things. And he's confronting all of these things. And he looks in this text and he writes it on duties. And if you look at the decision in his own life, he had the decision of, I can go to Athens and help my son, or I can go to the Republic and help my people. None of them are bad things. It wouldn't be a it wouldn't be an immoral decision to go to his son in Athens. You're helping your son, and that's that's beneficial. But as we spoke about, Cicero's not interested in what's good and what's bad. Cicero's interested in what's the best. What's the best thing I can do? I don't want to. I know both of my way. I know both of my decisions are good, but I want to make the best decision. And for him, you've got duties to yourself, you've got duties to your family, and you've got duties to the Republic. I like to, instead of using the Republic, I like to use the word community. You've got a responsibility and duty to your community and in that order as well. So your duties to yourself are of the lowest rank. If you do something that is dutiful to yourself, you are still honorable, but you're not as honorable as the one who's able to do those things for their family. And you can do them for your family. And that's even more honorable than just doing it for yourself but it's not as honorable as if you do it for your whole country or your whole, your whole community. So he ranks these things. And then he gets onto the Stoic virtues. And this is where it starts to get really interesting because you've got the four Stoic virtues, which are wisdom, justice, fortitude or courage, and temperance, which Cicero translates as decorum which is the, I quite like it because it's an aesthetic principle of life. That's saying that nature is beautiful. So being beautiful is good and being ugly is bad. If you are ugly, then there's something morally wrong that you should be beautiful because there's a moral quality to beauty. <laughs> and he says that that basically, that comes from being yourself. That it's only if you allow yourself to shine through, that's when you allow beauty because nature is constant. And nature is the same. And if you act, you can't remain constant because you're acting. But as soon as you're yourself, that's the way you can stay the most constant. So that's the, the aesthetic principle. So you've got the, the duties to yourself, the duties to your family and the duty to your Republic, which basically forces him into a decision because now it's, you can't stay with your son you have to go to the Republic because the Republic is higher than your son. So he decides to go back to the Republic before going into Rome. He goes to his villa again and he writes De Officius or the on duties, which he addresses to his son. So he's now offering advice to his son. This is how you be noble. And he sends this book and he, he gives it to his son, but then it's also it's, it's more than that because it's for the Republic as well, because he's one of his titles is Pater Patriae, the father of the fatherland. He rescued, he was the father with Catiline. He rescued Rome. And this is like, this is his whole identity. So he's now looking to the future 
and he wants to give the Romans a, an ideology and a philosophy that's for them. And this is how to be a good Roman. This is what it means to be Roman. And the duties to the Republic are based on virtue. So the, the, the duty comes with, the, so it's, if you have the virtue, it becomes a duty for you to do certain things. So if you have wisdom, for example, it becomes your duty to share that knowledge. If you have justice, it becomes your duty not only to not harm anyone, but it has the duty of stepping in when you see someone else being harmed. And that if you see someone else being harmed and you are capable of stopping it, it's unjust not to do anything. You have to step in. It's your, that's your duty. So... And the third one, temperance? Um, well, the temperance is basically you've got to be yourself. And the courage? Uh, courage, the, the duty is to enter public life. So you have to get involved with that. But now this gets interesting, right? Because now you've got these virtues which come with, well, fortitude or courage is the virtue that is, it's defined as the drive to be free. So it's this libertas again, this idea of liberty. So the Romans being free people, these are people of fortitude. So the Roman aristocracy are these courageous ones and the Romans are able to have a free state because their aristocracy and their leading elite have this character of, of fortitude. But what Cicero says is within a community, you have to maintain justice as well because justice is the core, core, I mean, it's the core thing that holds a society together. So you've got, they call them the, the bonds of human fellowship. That allowing humans to live together, you've got these, these bonds. And that's faith, basically. Which is, I trust you, you trust me, now we can do things together. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it actually comes down to that. I mean, what does it mean to be a human being? So what Cicero says is that everything in the world is made for man. I mean, you've got your cows and your chickens all made for us to eat. The beauty around us, it's there for us. It's all, the whole planet is, it's rich and full. It's, it's, it's all for us. But that includes us. So even me being a human being, my role as a human being is to do things for other human beings. So he adds an element of justice where it's not just don't harm anyone. It's actually a higher form of justice, which is you have to do things for other people. And everything has to be focused at the others, not yourself. So this is where confusion comes in with fortitude. Because fortitude and courage is this desire for freedom. But now if you're going to now force your way into that, then you don't actually desire to be free, you desire to be a tyrant. Or no, no, but before that, people who want to be free, what they often do is they avoid public life because they, they don't want to be involved with any of that. They don't want anyone above them. So they want to get away from everyone. So they live the, the vita contemplativa, which is basically like the private intellectual life where you're going to go away from everything and you're going to go to the mountains and you're going to read and write your philosophy. And you're going to have a very enjoyable existence because you love philosophy. I mean, it's the, the thing that everyone does today where it's, um, I'm not gonna, 
I don't want to get involved with doing things for other people. I'm just going to sort myself out first. Let me step away from everything. I'm more beneficial here because I'm not going to do anyone any harm. I can't hurt anyone if I stay at home. So let me stay at home. The reason why people make that decision is because they're scared and they fear. So they fear, they fear the mistakes they're going to make. They fear the, the intensity of public life that now you've got more people looking at you. You've got all of these things. Everything's just on another level. So if you're scared, you have to get rid of that fear. So fortitude is the, basically the getting rid of that fear. And entering public life is overcoming the fear of your own failure and overcoming your, the fear of making a mistake, the fear of losing, the fear of... Public mockery. Yeah. Public humiliation. Yeah, public exactly. humiliation. I think that's actually a word he uses. But if you, if you leave the public life because you don't have courage, totally fine nothing wrong with that and this is the this is the thing because it's this philosophy that Cicero is talking about this isn't for the masses this isn't for your your average joe on the street because not everyone is courageous not everyone has wisdom which is fine which is totally fine but if you understand justice and you are just in yourself you now have a responsibility if you have courage and you have this, they, 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 the Romans call it the magnitudo animi, which is if you have this greatness of mind or this greatness of spirit, rather, if you have this greatness of spirit, then it's your responsibility to do great things. But they have to be great things that are also just because justice is what holds the whole community together. This is exactly the experience I had yesterday in the park, right? So I took the boys for Muhammad wanted pizza. So I took them to, I bought a pizza and then I, um, I was like, okay, do you want to go to the park? And he's in the park. Yeah. So we go to the park, Greenpoint park and I'm walking there and I'm walking into the park and I'm down and I'm, okay. I'm just in my head a bit. And I'm walking past this grouping of people working class and there's one table with the older guys and they're playing dominoes on the table. And you can just look in their face and they are so happy. And there's another table and it's the younger, the younger ones, like maybe in their late teens and they're playing 30 seconds there. Same story. So happy. Big smiles on their face. And there's these children running around and there's like some aunties there with food and whatever. And I was just looking at them as I walked past and I was just like, these people are not extremely wealthy. Probably, no judgment, not extremely educated. Simple, working class people, they do their job, they put food on the table, and on the weekend, they can go out to the park and just have the most wonderful time and they're happy as pie, smiling, you know? And I was looking at them and I was like, and I was feeling down. And I was like, there's nothing wrong with it. That is great. It's beautiful to see. It was wonderful for me to see it. But those people are not going to change the world. Yeah. And there's no, absolutely nothing but wrong with that. The, they, 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 they have changed their world. They've changed their world because they've been true to themselves. Maybe men being true to themselves is easier in today's society because now we're being prosecuted for being who we are. But it's the... So now, 
I mean, and this is the because then we're, we're talking about justice as a virtue, right? But now the the most incredible thing that Cicero's done here, which is can't be understated, is that the idea of the Republic, which he'd written in the uh, on the Republic, that idea of liberty based on justice, which is based on the law courts, which is a constitutional thing, and it's a structural and institutional structure. It's an institutional structure. Now Cicero, without that structure. He says, "Well, how do we maintain this? Well, we maintain it from our inward. That the the Roman people now have to be just. So now we don't have the law courts. So now it's the it's the it's the Roman elite. This isn't like and think about who he's writing to as well, because not anyone can read this. Only the aristocracy can afford a book. Only an aristocracy can afford to to go read this work. It's not for everyone. It's for these leading men because it's." The public life, and the same as it was then, as it is now, saying public life kind of has a bunch of connotations to it. Because I'm not talking about you need to get involved in your modern politics, because modern politics has nothing to do with a public life. Modern politics is about upping your own status, and it's about playing this other. It's an it's another game. And it's got nothing to do with doing things for other people. Maybe you do things for other people because it gets you somewhere, but it's not about doing it for them. What I'm talking about is, and and this is the thing because it, it it works on all three levels. So it's you can be just in your own family, and you can use justice within there where you you flip the thing, where yeah, as soon as you start to break that in the family and the the justice, as soon as you start doing things that are unjust. You break the bonds of human fellowship, which is faith. You break that trust, and as soon as you break in trust, then you've now got yourself a problem. So it's not it's not it's not beneficial. It's not beneficial to be unjust. It's not good for anyone because you actually put yourself in a very unstable position. And only if you do these things justly can you actually maintain it. So then it's the the public life and the person who desires freedom, the person who is um, courageous. And desires to do great things; those great things must be for other people, because if those great things are for yourself, it's not courage. That's recklessness. That's recklessness, and that's being what uh, the the Latin is um, audax, which is where we get audacious from. So they use a different word. That's not courage, because it's much easier to go and put yourself at risk so you can gain everything. But try putting yourself at risk for you gaining nothing, and doing it for other people. You put yourself at risk so other people can gain something. That should be praised. That deserves all the praise in the world. If you see anyone doing that, then you must. That's what needs to be raised up. And this is where Cicero comes in because he's now looking at Caesar, because Caesar's now come in and he's he portrays this. Fortitude and this courage, because he's done all of these things, but、mm. he hasn't done them for anybody else. He's done it for himself. So he's done lots of great things for the people, but he's stolen the entire wealth of Rome, that common wealth which belonged to the Roman people. He stole it from them, and then he gives it back to them as some kind of charity because they don't understand.、Mm. They don't understand what's going on. <laughs>、mm-hmm. um, wow. Okay. Wow. And yeah, so this is. But then he says it's a responsibility now. It's a responsibility, and it's your duty, 
And only you can answer the question. Only you can answer the question of whether or not you are that man. But if you believe you are that man, it's your responsibility to get involved. It's you have to get involved. And that's the, the first part, right? Then he gets onto the second part, <laughs> which is now once you're involved, you now have to deal with more fear. Because now in that space, there's even more fear that comes with it because everything's intensified. So you've got desires which are wanting more and more and more. And you've got the fears which are now you've got more and more enemies. So the fears also escalated. And all of these emotions are escalated in this space. But now Cicero is like, it's more important for the statesman. It's more important for the person who takes on the public life to get rid of their fear. So then he talks about there's, there's different ways to, to achieve influence in the political world. And I can't remember all of them at the moment, but the one main one that people use is the fear of force. So the easiest way to get people to do things is I'm going to force you to do it. I've got a sword. And if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. So yes, you will do it. And so that, and at this point, Cicero says, there's no political tool that is more beneficial to public life than being loved and there's nothing more alien to political life than being feared because being feared breaks all of that down that's fascinating based on something i was reading this week from a book called the art of learning which musa ganna mentioned in the episode on his journey to become a leading foley artist and the man, Josh Waitzkin, he gives the example of breaking a horse. He says there's two ways, and this is, his mother was a woman that dealt with horses, and she was like the lady that everyone called to help with yeah. their horses, right? And he says there's two ways to break a horse. One way is the standard way that you beat and hurt and force the horse into submission one way or another mm. you know you do it over time <laughs> to the point where the spirit of the horse is so broken that it it just submits and accepts but you've broken the horse you can ride the horse you can take the horse out etc etc but you've broken its spirit uh, so it can do oh, it, <laughs> you can do the job it will do the job it will take you into war it will you can ride the beast, you can do whatever you need to do. You've, you've got a broken in horse, but you've broken its spirit. There's another way where you take the horse from birth and you nurture it and you, you expose it to man and you, you, you go on this long journey between the horse handler and the beast itself until the point where you have acclimatized the horse to man man can get on top of the horse, you can ride the horse, and you can build this relationship where the horse is broken in, but it's kept its inner natural spirit intact. Uh, and when I was reading that, it was just, it was so beautiful. And he was, he was using that example because he was talking about one of the teachers he had playing chess. And this guy was harsh and, and it just didn't gel with him. And then he found another teacher that nurtured him and this is a child prodigy chess master mm. and so it was just he used that example to highlight 
it, a part of his journey that he had the right teacher who didn't break his spirit. He kept his spirit alive. So the, the kind of wild adventurer on the chessboard. Absolutely. Was kept. Absolutely. And, you know, that was a big part of his journey of learning to become a chess master. Cicero almost says the exact same thing, but he, he uses his own terminology by saying that using force is all right with slaves. <laughs> with slaves, you can use force because that's beneficial and that's how you get them to do something. But if the people are free, you can't use force against them. That's not useful because the people who are free, to be free, you require fortitude. And fortitude requires you to not be scared. So if you have fortitude, you're not scared of the force. No one can force you to do anything because, yeah, you can threaten me with a sword, but I'm not scared of your sword. So I'm not going to do what you want me to do. So he flips it on its, on its head by showing that on the, on the one side, being fearful is bad. But then on the other side, he shows that making people fearful and being feared is also bad because it's, you're not actually, you're breaking the bonds between men by forcing someone to do something. You're actually breaking that faith and that bond that holds you together. And you're becoming alien to the people around you, which has its own psychological tortures. <laughs> I mean, you, you're, you're talking in the political public arena, but I mean, that is so relevant in your personal life in your relationships with and this is your, what Cicero is doing with your spouses with your children with your parents etc etc your friends and this is what Cicero is doing because he's saying that the, the structure is not there anymore so the way you maintain this is you have to maintain it in yourself you have to be the carrier of the fortitude and you have to be the freedom itself to give freedom to everyone else around you Oy. but then he says the person who's being feared now this is a this is an idea from Plato which is that the the tyrant who is the one who uses and like they they, they they define the tyrant as the one who uses the fear of force so the tyrant is the one who is being feared and that's how he maintains his power because he doesn't maintain power through um doing good things for other people he gains his power by forcing people to do things but the only reason you need to force people to do things is because you are afraid that they're going to do something to you. So, I mean, what Plato says is that the, the fear that the, the tyrant puts into its people is then reflected in the tyrant's own fears of the people. So the people are afraid of the tyrant, but the tyrant's afraid of the people. So the tyrant is not actually free. The tyrant is on top of everyone and he has the appearance of freedom in the outward, but in the inward, he is a slave, but he is a slave to his own fear because the tyrant is completely alone as well. The tyrant is alone. He has no one he can connect with that they, they talk about the barber, that even the, the, the one, the one king didn't shave and he had his massive disgusting beard because he didn't trust anyone to, to shave him. You're not living this grand life. I mean, you maybe have all of the external things that give you the appearance of it, but internally you're tortured. And it's like, so that, but then at this point, he, but why it's a responsibility then is because 
the tyrant can only be like the everyone is part of the same thing. So whether you're the ruling class or whether you're the ruled, you're still in the same situation, which is tyranny. You are governed by fear. The 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 tyrant is governed by fear in the inward, and the 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 citizen is governed by fear in the outward. But now everyone is governed by fear, so everyone is a slave of fear. So then to to escape tyranny, or the if the people aren't afraid, because they're free, because they're free and have fortitude, then tyranny can't exist, because. The tyrant's usage of force is how he maintains power. But if you're not afraid of his use of force, he has nothing that he can hold onto power with, because there's no he has no trust with his people. There's no other bond that holds them together other than this force. So if you remove your own fear of the force, you can never be controlled by a tyrant. The tyrant can never rule because you're free, and the the citizens being free then reflects in the outward situation. If you're free internally, your outward situation then starts to reflect that that freedom as well. But it's the 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 two reflect each other, and there's a responsibility on both sides. So you've got the ruling class that requires to not be feared. So you mustn't be scared, and you mustn't use force, and you're also you have to be just. <laughs> But on the other side, you've got the, and that's why it's the responsibility to enter public life. Because if you don't do anything, you've you've created the the scenario in which a tyrant can rise. So then, when you get the tyrant, because you've been passive, it's your fault. You let the tyrant come in and take it. Well, and this is all Cicero's address on, like first and foremost, to his son. Yeah, fascinating. To his son and to the youth of Rome. Because he's seen that the 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 Romans have basically taken everything from the Greeks, but they've taken it a step further. So you've got the the Greek politics, and you've got Athens and the great democracy, and you've got this. But now the Romans made it one better by making a republic. You've got the, I mean, when when the Romans took over Greece, they took all of the mythology and they took all of that work over, and they kind of made it Roman, but they made it better. But what they hadn't done by the time Cicero came in was philosophy. So if Cicero takes the Greek philosophy and he makes it relevant to Romans and makes it relevant to Rome, and by doing so makes it better because, of course, in his opinion, the Romans are better than everyone. <laughs> But this is a religious thing as well. So it's that the the Romans are the ones who are pious. The Romans are the ones who have a deep connection with the gods. Which is how we've been able to create this empire. Yeah, we're in a position of being blessed by the gods. That gives us this responsibility to do it properly. Yeah, so it's like you've got these two ways that people try and avoid fear, which is one, the private life, which is an escape. That's breeding passivity, which basically causes tyranny. So, if you ignore your fear externally. And you go inward. The fear is not gone. It's now just going to manifest in tyranny. You don't actually solve it. The other option is to go into public life, but then public life comes with its own temptations, which he calls the fear of loss. So you, once you gain so much, now you've got something to lose, and you fear losing it. And if you fear losing it, 
you now then start using force and then you start being becoming a tyrant so yeah there's no escape because now cicero's now combined the inward world with the outward world so you can have the appearance of freedom in the outward which is basically being a tyrant but you're not free in the inward so you've got the appearance of it but your actual inward reality is not the real thing but to have the real thing come out outwards the inward thing has to be correct already so now in this position of absolute crisis cicero is basically saying to people you have to get involved you have to get involved because there's no escape from your fear either you face your fear and maybe you lose or you don't face your fear and you enslave yourself externally and if you leave, if you don't do anything then by the time you do become enslaved it's too late so it's like you you have to you have to get involved and i mean and i mean one of the the big things here right is that it's it's not for yourself so this is when it becomes quite a sufi thing because it's that whole thing of now how do you know whether or not someone's doing this great deed because they want to be remembered for doing the great deed for so many people which is a personal thing so i want to be a good person and i want to be known as a good person and all of this stuff that not the real thing it has to be i want to do good for other people me being called a good person will come naturally from that but whether or not people think i'm a good person i'm doing what's what needs to be done and he's saying that's the thing he's saying that for the romans it's like there's no escape you have to get involved and you have to do what's right because otherwise otherwise you break you break down society and it's like maybe or maybe you'll be okay maybe you can live that life yourself but then you create an unstable structure so it's like they were selfish and they they gave into their fear by taking augustus at the end of the whole thing and then it had the nice appearance of this nice repaired republic and you go through these 60 years of the pax romana where there's no wars it's every there's peace in rome and augustus is raised up as this incredible incredible person who managed to take rome out of a civil war and save it but what was the what happened after that 2 300 years of the most the horrible the worst people that exist on the planet i mean you got people like tiberius who i mean comes in debauchery everywhere he takes people to his place in capri throws them off the cliff if they annoy him he invites the aristocracy over for dinner and then will take someone's wife at table take her away from the table rape her bring her back to table and then start making jokes about how he raped this woman and say either she was good in bed or bad in bed and all of these things jeffrey epstein yeah yeah exactly so it's the same thing it's the same thing and you got nero kills his own mother and then you've got all of these you when you've got the the military leaders that come in after that and i mean it's i mean you've got absolute chaos really and it says it's, it's allowing it it's it, and by that point it's you're you're in the loop by that point you can't get out of it because you've now given up you've given up you've accepted slavery and now you've yeah it's like it's it's you that the moment to act was then and you didn't do it and now you've you've got to live through it but whose moment was it that was the grand the grandparents it was the grandparents's moment to act and they didn't do it 
So the crime of the grandparents becomes the crime of the descendants. But you always have a way out because they're internal as well. Because if the tyrant cannot stand, if you're not scared, but then it's the, it's the, if your parents are scared, then you're going to learn to be scared from your parents. And then your children are going to be learned how to be scared from you. And it goes down and down and down and down and down. Until? Well, it's, it's essentially the thing of the, what happens in the political world is now no longer your concern because it's not about, it's not about you. So it's not about your success. So people like to say that Cicero was this big failure that he lost because I mean, he writes this work, he goes into the, but before we even get onto that. So from this idea of that, you've got the internal and the external reflecting each other in the internal slavery of fear and then the external slavery of the tyrant. And you've got these two things, which are reflections of each other, that the one can't exist unless the other exists. So the outward can't exist unless the internal, but the internal without has to have the, the they have to be together. Um, and he takes this, but then the, what he's realized is he's realized that I can't stay here in my villa. I have to do something actively. But now how does he convince himself to do something actively? This is where the second Philippic comes in. Because the second Philippic, I mean, it's brilliant. Because Cicero was not the Stoic sage. He was scared. Just like most of us. Like the human being is naturally prone to these, these movements away from reason. That it's 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 part of it's part of life. So what does he do? He writes the second Philippic. Now the second Philippic is a, an invective speech, which means he he basically just ridicules and destroys Mark Antony's reputation like nothing you've ever seen before. Mark Antony, just by the way, wasn't actually that bad. As a as the the outward actions that he did, I mean he was he was probably he was much loved. I mean there was there was. You can't, you can't be in that position without being loved by so many. You can't be that much of a threat unless you're, you've got the support of however many people. Um, but he's remembered today still as this terrible, terrible figure because of Cicero's second Philippic. That it's like it, you, it cuts through everything that you now everyone for the rest of time will think that Mark Antony is a, is a terrible, terrible, terrible. He was, if you're on the side of Cicero, but if, even if you're not, you, you have this idea of him. And the second Philippic is this invective speech that talks badly about Mark Antony. And it's a, at the same time, it's an invocation of freedom. So he's telling the Roman people fight against Antony, who's a tyrant, and join me, who's on the side of the Republic and on the side of freedom. But he didn't perform this speech in the Senate. This speech was written down. Why was it written down? It was written down because he was terrified. He couldn't enter the Senate. Antony was, Antony was in the Senate with all of his arms and all of his, um, his, um, his troops and everything all around the Senate. Cicero thought that if he entered the Senate, they were going to kill him. So he doesn't. He writes the second Philippic. So he, he constructs the reality that he wants. So now he gives people this reality, this, this speech, which sets him up in this ideal republic again, where he's now the orator who's talking to the Roman people. Doesn't actually exist, but he creates the reality with his words. So in the speech, he's talking about, look at these men with arms around you. 
how dare they, how dare these men enter the Senate? This is the Senate. This is a sacred space. How can these men be here? But this is but all in it's, his it's, bedroom. It's, it's all in his bedroom. It's all in his head. But he's publishing it. But then if you look at what he was saying in the Tusculan Disputations, which was how do you confront your fear? You talk badly about it. And then the, the invective speech is talking badly about his fear. So he's basically creating this thing where he's now talking badly about his fear. At the same time, he's talking badly about fear itself because fear becomes synonymous with tyranny and tyranny is the opposite of freedom. So freedom, to talk highly of freedom, you talk badly about fear itself. So he's using his, he's using his solutions from the Tusculan disputations of how to deal with the emotions He's putting them into a practical piece of writing, the second Philippic, and he's using that to construct a reality of who he is and what the Republic is. He can creates this reality, but then this reality was so convincing and so brilliant that after he'd done it, he had no choice. He had to enter back into Rome. <laughs> so this is all, it's, it's all preparation. So by writing the second Philippic, he forced himself to enter Rome and eventually be assassinated by Mark Antony. Yeah. Well, he creates the reality of him. He creates this image of himself that now that image requires him to do certain things. So he's created this image of himself as the, the one going against Antony. So that once he's created this image, he's he's encouraged himself and he's he understands who he is through this constructed reality he can then embody it but they say he failed right because he goes and writes the second philippic he encourages himself to get involved into public life and he goes right into rome and there's a point i think because there's there's 12 or 13 philippics depending on your numbering but by the time the the sixth philippic comes along he says that he's restored freedom and he thinks he's restored freedom and that there's there's hope. And so these like sixth and seventh Philippics, those were, were those written or were those actually? Those are now performed. So now he's after the second Philippic, he goes back to Rome and he starts all out. In the Senate. Yeah. What, all in 100%. Either we restore the Republic or you kill me. So his writing of the second Philippic was in a way the nurturing of the courage that he needed to actually enter the senate yeah yeah and and therapy it's i mean it's psychoanalysis basically it's that you talk through you the talking cure that you now create the thing so then it's like okay well actually what i've created this reality of myself but i can do it it's possible so he goes into it and i mean he gets quite far but as the story goes in the end he was betrayed by by Octavian, by Augustus. And Octavian then makes an alliance with Antony and they make a decision to, to kill him. They catch him running away, they chop off his head, they chop off his hands, and they stick him outside the, the forum as a warning to anybody else who wanted to stand up against them. So in the end, the Romans chose fear and arms and they didn't choose freedom or love. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the Basil Zaharov, the merchant of death, the rich guy sold arms around World War II to both sides. And someone came to his casino 
and asked him, how do I beat the house? And he says, I can't tell you how to win, but I can tell you how not to lose. Don't play. And that is what Cicero was doing because it's, he's in that world and he's doing that thing, but he's not doing it because he's in the same game as these other people, which is fighting for glory. He's in that world because that's where he can be most beneficial to his people. It's not about him. And it was never about him. He, him dying is not losing because he was not enslaved and death is natural. All human beings die. There's no way that Cicero could escape his death. He was always going to die, but he wasn't enslaved and being enslaved is not natural for a Roman. <laughs> so he was successful in the fact that no one was able to take away his virtue because the virtue is the highest good. And that's how you live a, a, a happy life. You can only live a happy life with virtue. If you don't have virtue, then you, you corrupt your inward state and you're, you become in, enslaved by your emotions. <laughs> Fear and loathing in the late Republic. <laughs> Fear and loathing in the late Republic. But, but one more thing, because this thing for Cicero was he believed that the Roman people were that. But why this is so relevant today for us is because, and, and for Muslims especially, because the Muslims cannot be slaves. The Muslims are slaves to Allah and you cannot be enslaved to human beings. So you, the, who, are the, who was Cicero speaking to? He was speaking to these people of fortitude, these people of bravery and these people who didn't fear anything, these people who weren't slaves. And he was speaking to these people that loved their fellow men. But that is what Islam has. If you think about the community, it's, it's not, no one forces anyone to do anything. It's all about love, that you love your brother, so you want to do something for him. And it's, yeah, where the, 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 the Muslims are the only ones who can be truly free. Because if you are a slave of Allah, then you're, you're slave of the best. That's, you can't be off, if, if you're a slave of Allah, you can't be enslaved by anything else. At which point, the Muslims can never be under a state of tyranny. Unless they move away from their Islam. So you look at the, the current, you look at the current political situation and it's, it's your, it's the Muslims fault. It's their own fault because they didn't do anything. They sat there passively in their homes and did their five prayers and thought that they were good Muslims, but it's not what being a Muslim is about. You know, being a Muslim is about the public life. It's about you take your Islam outside of your front door and you take it to everyone. And it's the, it's the, yeah, it's the, it's the cheat code to life because once you're, once you recognize that and you know what's waiting for you, then the only bad is doing something that's against Allah. And the only good is doing something that's for Allah. And if you, if you move away from any of that, then yeah, you've got your, we've got ourselves to blame for our external situation. In the wise words of Professor Yasin Dutton. If you're a slave to Allah, you're free to creation. Oh. <laughs> Let us be those people. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. Walking away from this recording was really quite amazing because I mentioned the book, The Art of Learning, with regards to the example on breaking in a horse. And another thing that 
the author says, Josh Waitzkin, is that in order to master something, the beginning stages are to just feed yourself with information. Reading, observing others doing that which you want to learn. And in absorbing all the technical information, it goes in and your subconscious eventually organizes it until it becomes ingrained within you and it emerges out of you in a flow state. With my brother Ahmed, what I realized is that he's been studying the life and works of Cicero for so long that now it manifests from within him in the style of Cicero. So that this whole episode was an amazing example of Ciceroan rhetoric using the life and works of this great man to show how it's relevant for us today in the 21st century. What an honor to have recorded it and to call Ahmed Dutton my brother. Thank you.